All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of the forum. Today we're talking with um, Tim Schwartz about the classified space program or space fleet. And we have already made some scenarios for how this developed, how early it was in the hands of our civilization and possibly early breakouts. Now we have come to the war. And then, of course, the UFO sightings explode post-war. Why do you suppose this is? We get a new fad. Right. Well, you know, you have the you have the speculation that uh, the the crash at Roswell that if uh, whatever it was that crashed at Roswell was an extraterrestrial spacecraft that we were able to back engineer uh, material and uh, technology uh, from that uh, aircraft. But there were already flying saucers before Roswell. Exactly, exactly. And see, and that, uh, uh, myself, I've never been convinced that the craft that uh, crashed at Roswell uh, was extraterrestrial. I mean, I I wonder if we weren't uh, uh, surprised by a uh, a Nazi Mm. uh, aircraft and that the United States uh, was taken very much by surprise that, uh, you know, here we thought the war was over and uh, and all of a sudden here is a very advanced uh, aircraft crashing at a very, very sensitive area in the United States. You know, I mean, this is the only place in the United States that uh, held uh, atomic weapons and you have this high technology aircraft uh, crashing there. And uh, so I think that at that point on, we really start to see a, um, gosh, what would you call it, like a a hyper-reaction. I Mm. mean, it's just like everything just uh, went into hyperdrive. Yeah, CAA suddenly founded. Right. But how surprised were we really considering what happened uh, a little before Roswell, this expedition we sent to Antarctica? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, obviously... The uh, the uh, Project High Jump expedition to Antarctica was not just a scientific expedi- you know, expedition. No, we, we we covered that expedition in depth. But uh, mm. could you relate it somehow to the Roswell incident? Oh, sure, sure. Well, see, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that sh- you know shortly after Project High Jump ended, and it ended early. You know, as as, as you talked about previously. That uh, then just a few months later, all of a sudden you start seeing unusual aircraft flying around in our airspace, uh, especially when Admiral Byrd had warned Congress that, uh, you know, the polar regions was someplace that we had to watch closely Mm. uh, because his fear was that, you know, enemy aircraft could attack the United States uh, uh, from the, uh, the the North and South uh, Polar regions. Well, then, just a few months later, all of a sudden, uh, you, you start seeing uh, aircraft flying around over the United States and in other places in the world that obviously are not ours. Right. 
So I I think that uh, I think that there is probably a connection there uh, that, you know, wh- whoever it is, I mean, people, you know, uh, <laughs> naturally, I mean, you know, there 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 could have been a, uh, a secret Nazi base, uh, probably a small one, mm. you know, in Antarctica with uh, more activity going on in South America as well. Exactly. And, yeah, and that uh, once the United States was aware that all of this was going on, then you start seeing, you know, flying saucers, flying disc, uh, 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 fly like uh, um, uh, triangles and cigars, uh, things like that over our airspace. Mm. You know, it's uh, so. I mean, I think that we were given a warning that you know, hey, you know, you're you're not number one on this planet. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, you know Ed Grimsley and now I think Stephen Greer and many actually are into these night vision Googles, especially second and third generation. You're probably aware of all the millions of UFOs that pops up when you use those. Right. And then you have the so-called NASA UFOs, uh, you know, several NASA recordings that's out there, like the Tether incident. And also there you see like a million unidentified flying objects looks like plasma often orbs Uh, so and obviously it's uh, a question of frequency here because when we already know enough uh, especially uh, (laughs) actually the science around the end of the 19th century tesla's time and until the second world war was groundbreaking in Mm -hmm. the area of vibration frequencies and all that but then it gets completely downplayed after the war. Probably it all goes black. But what we know is that all our senses are actually vibration related and they are at particular frequencies. So when we see a UFO suddenly appearing and suddenly disappearing, it's not always a question of them uh, leaving so quick that we can't see it. It's more of a question of changing frequencies so they manifest within our range vision and then they disappear from our range of vision. But when you use technology that can extend our perception, as for the as for instance the visionary perception, then suddenly we see them and how many they are there are there. Mm-hmm. And then the question begs itself, could all of this first of all, is all this technological? It could be many other things. It could be organic, spiritual, plasma. But also are all of these ours so you know there's a lot to cover here but uh, <laughs> what's your th- thoughts about that well when it comes to the ufo phenomena i i kind of think that it's uh, it, it's a little from column a and a little from column b i i do think that probably that the earth is being visited by uh, uh, beings from other worlds, other dimensions, you know, it's it's really hard to say because I think that saying that they're strictly from other planets is is being simplistic. Mm. You know, I mean, I think the the universe is such a such a huge and uh, um, unknown place that you know what we are seeing that you know we may perceive as beings from other planets you know, may actually just be so far outside of um, our knowledge base that, you know, it's uh, it's just really an unknown. I think that we are being visited by 
beings that are not from our world. I think that some are, quite a few are actually um, man-made craft, uh, like mm. we had talked about uh, before, that have been developed over the decades uh, using uh, Earth-based uh, technologies, but of a, uh, a lot more advanced than, uh, than most of us are aware of. I think that uh, some may actually also be... Um, uh, time machines, what we'd refer to as time machines. Mm. You know, I've often said that what better way, you know, if you have a technology that you could go into the past and visit a civilization, what better way to disguise yourself right. than, because uh, you know from looking back in history that, well, you know, people were saying that they saw, you know, like UFOs and that the beings who came out of it said that they came from other planets. Well, let's go back there and we'll just play that role. Mm. You know, what better way to disguise yourself then? Uh, because, you know, a lot of these cases of people who have claimed to have had contacts with UFO occupants, the UFO occupants are awfully knowledgeable about the people that they run into, about uh, where they live, where they're going to live, what's going to happen to them in the future, you know, like uh, friends and family who are going to die, mm. things like that. And, you know, they'll, they've even been told, like, you know, like months and years and stuff like that. Now, how would, uh, you know, like uh, an extraterrestrial being from another planet <laughs> know that, or why would they even care? care. Yeah. Yes, mm. yes, exactly. So, you know, so I think that we are looking at a number of different things mm. that resemble each other, but may not exactly be the same. You know, so I, I, I know that's kind of a, you know, almost a coward's way of, of, no, no. of, of getting out of it. But see, I think that if you go and um, pigeonhole yourself too much into one belief system, then when you have contrary evidence, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to be willing to look at that contrary evidence mm. because you're so in-depth, indebted to, you know, this one major belief system. Right. Mm. <laughs> but we do have uh, corroborating evidence for the most down-to-earth explanation, which... Uh, we have, uh, I remember when we had Dolan on uh, uh, not too long ago, we were talking about Gary McKinnon. And mm -hmm. as you know, he, he experienced uh, something, which uh, there may be a question of interpretation as for the non-terrestrial, but just the fact that it's in our records, as record as part of our fleet, just proves that this is... Uh, breakaway within our own, with ties to our public agencies and uh, departments. So, uh, would you would you say a few words about this? Well, yeah. Well, and you have to remember that you know Gary McKinnon. Um, I mean, he was not looking for anything having to do with a uh, a classified uh, secret space program. He was looking for UFOs. He was looking right. for proof that the United States had evidence that UFOs were extraterrestrial. Mm. So, uh, you know, I mean, so, I mean, his dog wasn't in that fight. No. So when he came across information that showed that the United States had a U.S. Space Command and with list of non-terrestrial officers' names and records of fleet-to-fleet -fleet transfers containing names of ships that uh, he could never find as Uf, uh, U.S. Navy ships. Do you remember some of these names? 
Oh, not off, not offhand. Okay. Uh, yeah. Interesting uh, to see if they. And I don't, I don't, and I don't remember. I don't know if he actually did because you have to remember that he was using a very rudimentary uh, hacking system. Yeah. Uh, and which, which just goes to show you how poorly guarded <laughs> the United States computers were at that time. I mean, yeah. you know, he was, he was able to get into it, and a lot of the, a lot of what he was able to do. I mean, he just eyeballed it. Uh, you know, so, and I'm probably just repeating like Star Trek names, but it was like, you know, the, yeah, my bet is on mythological names mm-hmm. that yeah. would fit the you profile, know, wouldn't t- it? You know, Ticonderoga <laughs> and, you know, yeah. th- things like that, you know. Okay. So, I mean, here you had a guy, I mean, you know, he was looking for proof of extraterrestrials and found this instead. Mm. And so, if he was really, if this was a guy who was just making up a story. Why would he make up a story about something that he wasn't looking for? Right. Why didn't he just say, hey, I found proof that we were, that, uh, you know, the aliens are here and that they have the U.S. military flying around in their spaceships? No, I mean, he found nothing about that and he admitted it. But, you know, instead he's like, hey, obviously there's some kind of a secret space program going on right. that has nothing to do with extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he go to the NASA archives too, or only the Defense Department? Or do you remember where what he hacked? Mm, let's see. Uh, I know he was he's hacking into U.S. government material, uh, military computer networks. Um, he was he tried to get into NASA. I don't think uh, w- actually what happened was that uh, um, as he was um, hacking these systems, I mean it was it was so rudimentary that the uh, the monitors at uh, at NASA and the Air Force were showing, you know, like him controlling the cursor uh, <laughs> back and forth. That's how he got caught. Someone was like, hey, I'm not moving this, you know. But uh, actually, I don't think he managed to get into NASA. And, mm. you know, and I may be wrong on this. I think NASA may have actually had done a better job at keeping their computers uh, hacker-free. But it was No, but we have other people who have testified what's going on in, in NASA. Yes, yes, yeah. And again... Um, I'm talking about the censorship and stuff. Well, with NASA, see, you know, NASA has always, NASA has been always kind of wimpy when it comes to their space exploration programs. Because, I mean, we we all know that the reason that humanity is exploring space is the idea that, well, you know, there's probably somebody else up there, and uh, you know we we want to meet up with them. You know NASA kind of you know like does the old duck and dodge with that, and in, you know they they are loath to admit that that you know that hopefully that someday you know we're going to 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 find another intelligent race out there. It's as if they don't want to admit this. You know, that is one of the odd things that that a lot of us, it's always mystified us about NASA, because you would think if they did actually discover that there was other life out there, that boy, I mean, you know, the governments would then be willing to pour money into their budget. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, NASA, you know, has had trouble for years. Yeah getting money to support their space programs. And, and, you know, in my opinion, and a lot of other people as well, you know, what better way to get money into your budget than to say, hey, we found 
there's another planet out there. Let's go visit them, you know. <laughs> but instead, it seems to be just the opposite. Any time that uh, um, any kind of evidence seems to come out, say like on uh, uh, like Mars, mm. you know, there there has been a, a number of really interesting finds on Mars, and they don't want to explore it. Exactly, exactly. You know, they found meteorites that, that, that have come from Mars, you know, blasted off the sur surface of Mars, and they are found like in Antarctic that seems to show uh, fossilized microbes. And, and NASA just doesn't want to touch that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there, we have people who have worked for NASA during the, the early days when we set up like the Voyager probes. Uh, to land on the surface of the moon before the Apollo space program, you know, we had these robotic craft that landed on the surface of the moon, took pictures, sent them back to Earth, you know, uh, in orbit around the moon in order to find good places for the, you know, the Apollo missions to land. A lot of these pictures, according to uh, some of these uh, reconnaissance experts who directly dealt with the material as they were as they came back to earth said that it appeared that there were domes and other intelligently built structures on the moon that nasa was taking pictures of and mm. it was their job to basically airbrush them out exactly. if they couldn't airbrush them out the, the those photographs had to be destroyed yeah, you know, we've had a number of different people from different aspects of these missions mm. who have claimed the same thing. And and I mean, you know, we still I mean, there, there's a lot of very good people um, who have done some uh, excellent research on the photographs that have made it. I, you know, I, I don't know if maybe they just weren't noticed who have found unusual looking structures mm. you know on the surface of mars but uh, again nasa and the moon yeah yeah uh, well mars as well but yeah i was referring to the moon thank you okay. mm. um but uh, you know you have like a robert morningstar who uh, who has done some really excellent research on uh, pictures that i mean they're they're in the nasa archives and can be uh, found if you if you have the uh, you know like the correct serial numbers for them and uh, but nasa does not want to admit that uh, you know like yeah these could be uh, intelligent structures yeah anyone can verify it and uh, uh, other people worth mentioning when it comes to proving this censorship this manipulation of evidence is uh, like joseph skipper he has some wonderful mars pictures in his database uh, it's mm. out there people can check richard hoagland is known for have brought pictures uh, to the public john lear but it's true what you say for those who don't know it, there are people who have worked for NASA who's out there, who's on the record, mm -hmm. have testimony that, yes, my job was to airbrush. But we don't even need a word for it, because when you see some of these pictures brought out there, the early airbrushing was so primitive that uh, now in the days of Photoshop and everything, everybody who sees these pictures can see that it's smudged out. <laughs> so there's no, it's a problem for them. Now they probably have very sophisticated methods. But uh, those that are out there are so obviously manipulated that it's embarrassing. Right. It's almost as if they want us to know. 
<laughs> you know, I, I really wonder anymore if if NASA and these other agencies really even bother anymore yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to try to hide these photographs because I think that the the giggle factor has become so predominant with a lot of this stuff that mm. even if you have something that very clearly looks like a bridge or an old building or, or a know, statue in a, in a crater, right, right, you know, uh, and then somebody says, hey, look at this, this looks unusual, and people are like, oh, yeah, right, you're seeing, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're seeing little men from Mars on the moon, you know, and, yeah. and see, and that's, that has been something that has been brought into play for years now when it comes right. to all of this stuff, is the giggle factor. Mm. I mean, you know, you can have a picture that is just absolutely fantastic, but if you go as far as to say, hey, this could be an extraterrestrial structure on the moon, then you're just, oh, well, you're all, you're a nut job. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care what, well, you know, what it looks like. You're saying that it's, you know, extraterrestrials. You're crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but well, let's take a better argument that uh, the so-called debunkers or the skeptics may have. And that is why, why do we need them to throw all his money after NASA? What, what usage possibly could it be of a civilian space program? Well, um, the very beginning of the civilian space program had its roots in the military. And it's sad to say, and it, it's still very much uh, that way. The, the, the whole, the, the beginning of, say, you know, like the Gemini and the Apollo programs came from the, uh, the, the military's research into missiles in order to carry atomic and hydrogen warheads mm. to enemy countries. And so then later this was this was then used in NASA for the you know the, the so-called civilian space programs. Mm. And I think that there was this promise that if if we allow scientists to say study the moon uh, you know, for, for, for scientific reasons that there there's going to have to be something that would be profitable for the military involved as well. The, the, the whole development of the Apollo space program uh, was also part of a secret military program to establish a military base on the moon mm-hmm. in order to have um, a positioning system that we could shoot at Russia or the Soviet Union. It was a part of the Star Wars program. No, this actually, this actually was something that was first considered in the late 1950s. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. See, the the the, the Air Force very much, or the military, uh, it wasn't just the Air Force, but uh, you know, the military wanted to have uh, bases on the moon uh, so that they could have. And this was, you know, you have to remember, this was the days before we had um, satellite technology as advanced as we do now. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, we there are probably already atomic like uh, platforms in orbit secret platforms that have that are armed with missiles and what have you that could shoot uh, a missile down anywhere on the planet in a certain amount of time and probably upwards too oh yes 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 definitely but at you know at uh, you know in the 1950s and 60s the best way that they could think about doing this was to establish a base on the moon and then shoot at the earth from the moon 
And so the whole Apollo space program was a kind of a conglomeration of the military and the civilian sciences, just kind of, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And then, you know, I think that by the time the Apollo space mission, you know, moon missions ended, because they still had at least two more, I think, on schedule to go before Richard Nixon canceled them. But I think at that point, it was realized that for military purposes, that the moon, you know, that that they had better ideas, the military had better ideas uh, of what to do. So, you know, I think then the interest in the moon was lost, and that was one of the reasons why the civilian space programs to the moon was uh, was canceled. And without that military money coming in, the Congress wasn't going to give you enough, and so just it, they had to stop it. And now they're privatizing the NASA uh, task, so to speak. Well, and that's the, once again, it's because the military space program has gone way past NASA at this point. Mm. Uh, The Air Force uh, has its own, they have their own rockets, you know, and I'll put uh, quotation marks about that, around that, but uh, the United States uh, Air Force and military have their own space fleet. Right. And this is and this is what we've been talking about all of this time. I mean, they have their own space fleet in, in cohorts to a certain extent with this uh, this this breakaway civilization. Uh, but uh, again, I mean, this is if you would go and ask an Air Force general who may have knowledge of the the, the military space fleet about a breakaway civilization and their spacecraft, he'd look at you like you're crazy. You know, this, <laughs> yeah. this, this is extremely compartmentalized information. Yeah. You know, not every general or soldier knows about this stuff. Mm. Only the, the, the top ranking, the elite of the elite, the people who are in this for life mm. know about this. You can't just go and just let every general know about this kind of stuff because when he retires, he could blab. Mm. And, and their family, I mean, you know. And many have, many have. Yes, and, and, some, and some have, but they haven't been given all of the information, which is why when they do blab, we get such a diverse range of stories. Yeah, you yeah. get the one. Yeah, like Philip Corso. Corso, I think, was uh, was legitimate, but he I hinted th- to at least a lot of things. Uh, right. There are some theories that he's uh, that there's a mix, that there's some disinformation and and some truth in right. in Corso's book. Well, see, Corso, uh, people were like, oh, well, you know, he was just doing it because uh, he never ro- rose to the ranks that he thought he should in the military and that, uh, you know, uh, he, he was just wanting one last hurrah to make some money at the end. Well, a more psychological uh, plausible would be then that, okay, uh, I'm not promoted. Well, look at me spill the beans. Right. But, but I'm right. keeping, uh, of course, uh, some of it within the official narrative of E.T., but if anybody who uh, who knows anything about all of this, you don't get rich talking about UFOs. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to make any... On the contrary, you lose your job Ex- and your credibility. Exactly, and that's, wh- and that's what happened to Corso. 
Mm-hmm. That's what happened to Corso. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about a guy who, I mean, was very well thought of by his peers. Mm-hmm. But once he came out with this information, then they were just like, oh, well, this guy is nuts. But I mean, you know, shortly before he put this book out, nobody thought that. So mm-hmm. simply because he wrote about something that happened in his past that, I mean, and he, he was pretty straightforward about how he wrote it. Yeah, and researchers like Dr. Farrell and others, they found, um, I don't know what you call it, discrepancies and, and um, paradoxes, which, uh, you know, you, if you tell a story out of your belief system, irregardless of how genuine or how authentic it is compared to the truth, at least people who do it uh, have some kind of internal coherent belief or or, or about it so mm-hmm. you wouldn't deliberate put up out uh, apparent internal self-contradiction you you would try to <laughs> your, your logic avoids that so often when that is done it is because to bring our attention to the fact that something is claimed here right uh, so but this is okay we're going into a little conspiracy version of it here but, but you know <laughs> what I mean I mean so a big question here is what factions do you imagine we have uh, in uh, the global uh, geopolitical or, or exopolitical scene today? Because there is uh, what we talked about so far are different uh, developments that some coup emerge, some uh, uh, are antagonistic. So what do you imagine are the players on the scene today? Behind the scene, rather. The the players behind the scene, well, um, it is, I think that there are probably at least two different factions, as as you referred to it, of of this breakaway civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, you know, like a a Western and Eastern type of of situation. Yeah, I think the Russians have their own black project. They have to have. But I think that there is also... collaboration going on because mm. it's like i said before you know the the real movers and shakers are the the, the people with the money mm. you know the 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 rich elite um who have been the real movers of our society for you know a millennia and i think that they possibly are controlling both of these separate factors uh with their own trying to think what what the proper word would be you know just like with their own embrace i guess would be the word Mm. because they and you know the two separate factors you know like you said like maybe the western world and the eastern world may not even realize that they are being played against each other by the third overarching factor that controls everything yeah, but what about the post-Nazi current? Uh, we have uh, uncovered uh, and are still in the process of uncovering in these areas mm-hmm. that a substantial faction of the most ideological Nazis did survive and they did engage on the globe uh, economically and in criminal enterprises, uh, cartels, mafios, drugs, terrorism, and corporations notwithstanding. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there are obviously different factions here, even if there's an hypothetical upper echelon that somehow collects all this together, which, of course, is an open question. But don't you (laughs) see more than two factions? You know, I... 
I really don't. I I I I don't think that there is that much space mm. for for more than just just a couple. Uh, I, I I really don't. If if we did see more than that, I think that we would see a lot more open conflict. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but we do see a we do see a lot of weird open conflict on the world. Yeah, but see, I I think a lot I think a lot of that uh, that open conflict is uh, uh, specifically engineered to make money. Yeah, yeah, of course, but it's also by proxy, isn't it? Because there oh, are yes. people are dying at the top. Uh, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein. Now he's a friend. Now he's not. As an example, you see it in Syria, you mm-hmm. see it in Libya, uh, and uh, behind the scenes there are geopolitical interests. Right. And uh, this is classical. You know, you have the uh, Zionists on the one hand, with their influence, and you have the the fascists on the other hand with their influence, and you have then separate uh, states who's managed to hold on to power, like the Russians, who are obviously independent. Uh, to a certain degree here so i don't know i'm just throwing out uh, these observations here see how your take on it well and, and i think that again these are all just basically kind of like uh, uh, bit players or pawns to 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 the real controlling factors mm. that i mean that circumnavigate are not circumnavigate but i mean they're, they're i mean they're, they go beyond uh national borders and, oh yeah, uh, and, sure. And, and, and things like that. And, uh, so, and these countries, you know, you, you talked about, you know, Saddam Hussein and people like that. I mean, they they have no they have no idea um, who the real. No, but behind them. Yeah. No, but be, behind every every power base on earth, there are uh, larger powers. And uh, yeah, so in his case, you know, he was blessed by Rumsfeld and, mm-hmm. and company at one at the oil and energy. You know, behind Bush. Now it's the bankers behind Obama but uh, so okay so so what about the crack then uh, if there's not a real antagonism going on how do you observe what sense do you make of let's say the economical crack oh well uh, the economical crack is uh, I mean it's it's an economical crack for us but not for uh, uh, you know not for those who are who are all above that. Yeah, but who stands to gain? I mean. Yeah, the, see, well, that's the, a, what's yeah. Once again, though, that's the six million dollar question there. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, you know, if 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 anybody, and, I, and I'm sure it's been done, but you know, you need to go and look into the people who profit from these kinds of things. Um, I mean, you're always hearing these stories. Uh, and I'll use 9-11 as an example, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a few days, and I don't know the stock terms or the financial terms uh, for this, but, you know, like a few days before 9-11 happened, uh, whatever aircraft company, the, the airliner that was involved, was it United or something like that? You know, somebody somebody went and uh, um, bought stock or cut stock short. Again, I don't know the, the financial terms, but uh, you know, in that uh, in that airline, and then naturally, then after everything happened, you know their their stock crashed, and then they were able to sell short and and make a huge profit of that. And right. you see that time and time again before yeah. international crisis. 
crises happen that maybe a week or so before something happens, somebody goes and uh, uh, again, I, I, I can't remember what the term is. It's like sell, no. selling it short, or, uh, but they're, they're able to uh, take advantage of uh, um, the situation and make money off of it oh. as if they knew in advance that something was going to happen. So, I mean, I, th I think there is where we have some really good evidence that there is a very high up controlling power over over the entire planet. And I think that's the earmarks to this breakaway civilization. Right. Um, we are going to have Catherine Austin Fitz on, I hope, for elaborating more on the black budget. But, mm. um, yeah, we have touched up on it already, too, in this series. So it's an aspect uh, to the whole story. But I keep getting back here a little to the Nazis. Obviously, they would be manifested differently today, but they're still fascist in their ideology, their worldview. I think they are, uh, because, listen, if they have this technology already at, around the war, and you, you were conceding that they would have uh, been the most advanced at that point, mm -hmm. they would have known how to get away, you know, break away. Because you see, in the beginning, we see them very heavily present in South America. Right. But as they have time... And time, not only South America, by the way, all over the planet, as different people we have on explains. But, you know, as time goes by and uh, culture develops, they remain as players behind the sea, no longer prancing ponies with, you know, Hugo Boss uh, riding uh, uniforms, but more like a grey eminence in, in suits behind the scene, men in black. And so... They wouldn't go away. In fact, uh, if they wanted to continue, they would have built uh, better breakaway bases to be completely left alone, notwithstanding that uh, the surviving uh, culture on Earth, the, the so-called allies, get their own programs up and going and, and get radar and all that. So, And suddenly they do disappear from South America. There's no doubt, there's no question that today South America has liberated themselves from this old CIA corporation fascist grip, uh, country after country are turning extremely radical, mm -hmm. and their geopolitical influence there is lost. So where did they go? Everybody can see that they have disappeared, mm -hmm. and you're not the only one I'm asking this question of, by the way, because it's such a huge question. But uh, on your part, where do you see this this go? Because if you only think there's two players, you don't give room for the Nazis or the, should I say, the heritage of the Nazis. Oh well, I I think the uh, I think the heritage of the Nazis are uh, have become incorporated in into one, if not both, of these groups. Okay. Definitely, definitely. Right. Uh, well, uh, okay. Now you know you have to you have to remember. See, uh, the, the Nazis, uh, I think that they kind of um, decided at the, after the end of World War II that, well, I mean, you know, we're not going to be successful taking over the planet by military, so mm. let's continue with our economic processes. And I think that they have continued... The, uh, the the Fourth Reich, so to speak, 
in the way that the world's economy is run today, especially corporatism. You know, don't don't forget that fascism, its other name is corporatism. Mm -hmm. And especially here in the United States, where within, you know, the last 20 years, corporations have become really the 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 real power in this country forget about the democrats and the republicans it's the corporations so we the united states and and other countries the world in europe where the corporations are also making great uh, huge you know inroads um we are seeing a basically a fascist type of government system being implemented all over the planet and this is because of that nazi influence from the uh, the, the the survivors of of world war uh, 2 from germany the people who died in Germany in World War II, we're not talking about uh, 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 the bankers and the rich and the elite. No, it was it was the soldiers and the common folk and everything like that. Some of the, you know, I mean, a lot of the military players, mm. but the real movers and shakers, the real people who financed all of this, they just moved to other countries to uh, to continue their process. And uh, so, I mean, we see that not only on a on a local more um, visible arena, but also higher up into these uh, these breakaway civilizations, uh, mm-hmm. which they're using this corporatism to uh, to run the country. And, and I think this is going this is kind of like an ultimate goal for these breakaway civilizations uh, in order to try to control the planet is to not control it through uh, military, but to control it through corporations and financing and, and, and economics. Now, of course, I mean, you're, you're always going to have hot spots, say like the Middle East. The Middle East always seems to be a hot spot. And so this is an area that is always going to be exploited because of this and then they can use that to create other conflicts you know around the planet whenever needed uh but uh, you know i uh, again i think that a lot of this has its roots from nazi germany and the people who came out of that um at the end of world war ii but do you think uh, they have uh, everything has transformed since the war mm-hmm. and uh, our culture has developed too but uh, um, if you, you look at their old uh, ideals i mean some of them were more peculiar with hitler mm-hmm. and some of them were probably more uh, time stamped the zeitgeist of the time so that would have got rid of some of the old notions but how much of the crazy philosophy obviously in the core of this is an inhumanous and an anti-human and and uh, destructive Kali uh, energy, uh, so mm, to speak. But mm-hmm. but uh, as for stuff like the primitive racism, their anti-Semitism, how, how much of the you know we, we high octane speculation here, sure. but did we are allowed? This is part two. So how how would we see that survive? Because then there's a question of uh, you know uh, how they regard how they relate to Israel and the Zionism and and Zionism 
do have uh, th- there's actually more Christian Zionists than they're Jewish, by the way. <laughs> but they have influence in America. So then, then you know, if they keep their anti-Semitism, there should be at least two ideological factions just on that base. But of course, they can have corrupted and taken over Israel. But then, then they they obviously do not have uh, this anti-Semitism going on anymore. Uh, we know for sure that they have the money and the power hunger uh, as a basic value. That's indisputable, power and money. Mm-hmm. But of all these other notions that we associate with Nazism, how much of that do you think have survived? Mm, I think that... Like you were saying, some of the some of the more crazy aspects, um, you know, like the the whole idea of the uh, the Aryan race being superior over everybody else. Um, I think that those basically were just implemented by those of the the lower ranks. Is that is that a good mm-hmm. way to put it? And it was just it and it and it was kind of tolerated. Um, I don't. Unless something like that nowadays is profitable, mm. I don't think that there is a an ideology along those lines, with the exception of, um, say, like a, a master race slave race type mm. of a situation, which basically um, the entire planet is a slave race uh, to these people. If, you know, if you want to go and look at it, you know, like some of the, uh, some, some researchers like Joseph Farrell, you know, I mean, I, 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 I kind of think that he, he's of the opinion that this breakaway civilization considers us all black, white, you know, red, mm. yellow, whatever, um, mm. as being a slave race to, uh, to the, to, to the secret breakaway civilization. Uh, but, uh, Unless there is a profitable mode to instigating, say, like race wars or, or, or whatever, mm. then it's not really, it, it's not a philosophy. I guess that's... We see that in a culture war. We see that they right. try to make Islamism, which we know, Nazism, well, it was started yes. by the British, uh, but the Nazis were very quick to take over uh, Islamic fundamentalism and push mm-hmm. it in an even worse direction. Yes. So, so and, and, and those wars in the Middle East and other places, Ukraine... Uh, they, they could be, you know, remote uh, by proxy, you know, battles by different factions of influence by proxy. Mm. Um, as you say, to earn money, but if they're going to ruin places on Earth, they wouldn't want to take their own backyard. Or, exactly. And if they are integrated in our civilization, they do have family. Uh, I discussed this with Dolan. How much do they care about where the world is going? How much do they care about the environment, about values? And we were both ending at a tangent that we hope, at least, that they do recognize that our planet is special enough to be valued and that Mm -hmm. they have some ties. Because breakaway, in what sense? In a cultural sense, in an ethnical sense, in a technological sense, in a geographical sense, Mm -hmm. you know. So these are huge questions we have to entertain. And, uh, yeah, what's your take on it? Well, you know, I should point out, uh, you talked about the uh, uh, fundamentalist, uh, uh, you know, Islamic movement that has Mm -hmm. become really apparent nowadays. Uh, Werner von Braun, while he was still alive, when he was still here in in the United States, we're talking about a guy, I mean, he was very high up in the uh, Nazi chain of command. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after uh, after he was brought to the United States uh, through uh, uh, Operation paperclip um he said one time that um 
that there was going to be several scenarios that were going to be played out. Uh, one of them was the Cold War, and he said that that would that would operate for a while until it be it became inefficient, and then there would be terrorism. Hmm. And and he said that and terrorism being instigated with Muslim fundamentalists. That was what he said. And then he said the third and final factor would be a Cold War with a fake extraterrestrial race. Hmm. And I and I think that we are seeing this scenario being played out. We saw the Cold War, and now we are seeing the uh, um, you know the the the, the terrorist terrorist uh, uh, hot war with uh, Islamic uh, uh, fundamentalists, and then after that plays out in what you know fifty seventy five years, then are we going to see a uh, um, like a false flag operation from this breakaway civilization? Uh, like we've seen, you know, in science fiction movies where like, oh, you've got uh, extra or like the uh, Mars attacks. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm. Except that it's not actually the case. It's uh, it's fake in order to uh, uh, kind of like uh, bring everybody together under. And uh, you've heard conspiracy theorists worry about this all the time under a war. Finally, a one world government under control by this breakaway civilization. It's pretty scary to think that uh, if they do have uh, heavy weapons orbiting the planet, which can be pointed down to the planet as much as up up to, to intruders, then this is indeed a present planet because it could explain why if there's even more powerful forces out there or even more benevolent forces out there, mm-hmm. They would be kind of refrained from uh, interfering too much because uh, they uh, there is this self-destruction system at place controlled by humans. I'd be more relieved if this was controlled by someone else than people on our planet because someone else, not from this planet, coming here would have proved that they're able to survive their own collapse, so to speak. But we haven't been able to prove that we are not completely suicidal. On the contrary. So there is this uh, prison planet uh, system in place then. Uh, But how do you relate to the classical fundamentals question of uh, non-terrestrials, meaning then not necessarily non-humans, because the human manifestation may be a template, it may be a a cosmic kind of race. uh, Right. But so let's not go into biological aspects, just uh, if there is, you know, people on Earth that controls this and cousins who comes from Earth that may be on the moon or Mars or Europe or wherever, uh, I mean the <laughs> moon Europe, uh, and um, so could there be people who's not from our culture at all, our civilization at all, be that from another planet, another time, another dimension, and be that good guys or bad guys or neither of the above, but do you think, let's start with, do you, are you open to the notion that they may be out there in, in addition? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I we have seen throughout the history of mankind that there have been interactions with humanity and then some other outside 
influence, race, what have you. You know, at one mm. time we referred to them as angels or gods or demons. Or ancients. Have yes. Also, yeah. mm. Right, right, exactly. But there you have another faction then. Mm-hmm. Then you can't say it's just two factions. <laughs> there we, now we have three. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because yeah. this is a point Dolan raises in his, when he entertains the disclosure concept, when he entertains the breakaway civilization, he always gets back to that X factor too. And he even points to a fourth one, in, in fourth in our calculations here, that would be us the people, we the sheep, we the prize that are fighting for. We have something to say here too, and thank God for internet. Otherwise, we, the two of us, wouldn't have this conversation at all. That's right. That's right. We would still be kooks that uh, people came to in in secret to ask about all this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, to fulfill the circle. So, your take on this? Well, I mean, yeah, I I definitely feel that uh, that planet Earth is under the influence of uh, outside sources. You know, like you said, mm. uh, uh, you know, at at one time there seems to have been more of an apparent influence. Um, uh, like I said, people used to believe in gods and demons and, and angels. Uh, nowadays, it seems to be more subtle. Uh, but again, that could just be because of our own uh, uh, perceptions and belief systems and how we mm. look at these types of interactions. Um, you know, John Keel used to call these things like mimics of man, that, that you had uh, mm. uh, beings that superficially look like people that um, uh, live amongst us, but they're, wow. they are not human. And that, uh, and, and he said, that how would he know? He was the one who ha- was involved in Tesla-like technology, right? John Keel? Yeah. No, 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 no. John Keel was a uh, a writer from uh, New York. He wrote like the the Mothman prophecies. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Okay, uh, okay. I mean, he did he did extensive uh, research and a lot of field work, you know, mm. along these lines. And I mean, and and I mean, he even uh, he even claimed. That I mean, he would talk on the phone, you know, with these these things. They'd they'd call him on the telephone, and you know, yeah. <laughs> he, he'd have like long conversations, and or or you know, like uh, these things, because a lot of them would claim to be like uh, from from another planet that they yeah. came here, and and they would talk to people on Earth, and then the people would then contact keel and say well this is what you know gary from the planet lanolos told me right. and, and and things like that so again we're crossing this border into the metaphysical area very much so because i think that the this this non-human contact that we have been that humanity has been part of from the very beginning of time has probably deliberately disguised itself so that we're we're never going to be sure of its origins. Heck, right. it may not even be sure of its origins. <laughs> the one thing that I always there there've been these stories that in the 1950s that United States President Eisenhower and the Air Force actually had face-to-face contact with beings who came out of flying saucers, who yeah. claimed that signed a treaty with them. These beings claimed to be, you know, from like a, a different planets outside of uh, our our solar system, and um, a, and I think that initially we believed them, 
But somewhere along the lines, I think that uh, the, the military and the government and, and then some of these, you know, like maybe part of the breakaway civilization as well, found out that this information was not true. Hmm. That we were that I mean that yes we were dealing with non-human entities, but whatever information that they told us was probably a lie or disinformation even that they weren't from because uh, early we were told you know like oh yeah we're from uh, we're from Mars and Venus and Jupiter yeah, yeah, yeah that's it that's that's the ticket you know but then <laughs> once our technology got advanced enough that we were able to yeah, these people got rid. Yes. When we realized that this was bullshit. Right. Mm. But see, once we got, to, you know, like satellites and stuff that were able to go up to these planets and we could tell, you know, there's no people living there. Then these beings said, oh, no, 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 no. We're from, you know, we're we're from Zeta Reticuli. Right. That's, you know, 500 light years away. <laughs> yeah. Come and get us now. You know? yeah. I know we can. And they're probably not even from there. But then, Tim. But, the, but yeah, but to see, the story always changes. So, I mean, I think that, that we have had contacts with these things, whatever they are, but the stories that they have told us over the years cannot be taken at face value. But then, Tim, it's unavoidable, and we should probably spend the rest of the what's left of the program on this question then, and that's that I think I, I'm kind of going back and forth from that we are at war. Uh-huh. Because we, we, we have so stupid leaders, their values and everything, that uh, they're so paranoid and fear-based that uh, we're probably at war with these, um, I don't know, entities or whatever, or, or at least uh, we believe we are, uh, we behave as we are, we, right. we, we try to shoot at them and keep them away, and we have this... Uh, potentially this carpet of destructive technology covering the Earth and probably bases uh, elsewhere too, like the Moon or, or Mars or Iapetus or wherever, or this Satan's ring and all that that Hoagland and others have uncovered. But you, this is scenario thinking, listeners. We have to tell them we know we are at the far side of <laughs> anything here. But this is what's fun, right? So, But sometimes I'm also I'm more sympathetic to Stephen Greer's explanation that these people are actually peaceful because you know if they have this ability they could i don't know what the prime direction is that may stop them but they have had the ability to appear themselves and make themselves known and mass which they apparently don't do they seem content they seem to be agreeing that we shall be kept in the dark and also they have had a technology or the means is probably better to say we don't even know how physical they are in their source uh, the means to wipe us out if they wanted to you know, you know if these were space monsters who were out to eat us that would have happened by now <laughs> right so and so and, and not to really make head spin here but you should probably also if you are familiar with it get a little into the question of archons because all this scenario you and me are painting here all these inputs you're coming with are nothing new if you look at the story of the archons are you right. familiar with that the gnostic uh, yes i mean you're talking about like say the uh, the, the the gnostic gospels yes. version of the archons yes 
or whatever version. But, right, uh, right. You see the parallels here, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. let's ta- get a take on that before we wrap this up. Mm, well, okay. Now, when you refer to the archons, I mean, the idea of the archons are you're talking about, say, like almost a supernatural type of uh, demonic entity. Uh, I think that's how the, uh, the the Gnostics looked at it. Uh, yeah, with their paradigm, right, right, non, uh, non-technological paradigm. Right. But they were they were telling bullshit too. We shouldn't believe them. There are other myths out there too about creatures like this, mm-hmm. creatures who deliberately poisons our seed of knowledge, who wants to keep us ignorant or confused or whatever. Well, you know, there, there, there seems to be kind of like almost a. Uh, it's like they're giving us backhanded compliments because there, <laughs> there seems to be a deliberate feeding of information to us to right. to help us advance as a race, and then at the same time they do something that kind of slaps us down a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, because we we see that that humanity has uh, they'll advance for a little while and then something will happen that will stop the advancement we'll have like a dark age for a little bit mm-hmm. you know and then we'll advance for a little while and then the same thing happens all over again and I just I wonder if this isn't kind of like a deliberate scenario that has been uh, uh, developed over the you know billions of years when it comes to a higher civilization associating with a uh, a lower level civilization because you know you can't just go and come to a a planet uh, that has an emerging intelligence and just suddenly throw all of the no, science no. and technology that you have at them because they, they oh, oh my god can you imagine what the earth would do <laughs> if, if all of a sudden the spaceships appeared and they gave yeah. us you know i mean the knowledge of the universe oh my god we would we would kill each other our heads would explode oh yeah. well yeah well i mean you know people would get a hold of that we'd we would we would kill each other in a matter of days yeah. you know yeah. and so i think it's a situation where and it's it, like you said said um i think that we are given kind of like little drips and drops of information to just uh just just to carry us on every hundred years or so just slowly bringing us along we get a little too uppity well you know let's let's throw let's throw a meteor at a continent now we're now we're into ancient astronauts hypothesis right right well uh, or you could go and i mean there's also there could also be like uh, um spiritual de- yes. derailment you don't have to go and throw a meteor at them you go and uh, and, uh give some you know like a, a bogus spiritual information you know say like get a certain uh a group all up in arms because they believe that God has talked to them and told them to go and kill everybody else. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you, you have several different scenarios that we have seen played out through history that would not surprise me if this was not deliberate, but all part of our advancement and, and not only our advancement, but this may be something that has been that has been done for other civilizations throughout the universe or at least throughout the uh, you know, uh, local universe for a long, long time. Yeah, but then uh, obviously we cannot conclude with anything else than that they at the long run are benevolent 
in their intentions. Well, you know, it's like it's like ants asking whether or not we're benevolent, <laughs> you know, to them. Well, if I if I am an ant farmer, I am to uh, a certain not necessarily to the extent of you know making the ants having a good time, right. but for the end goal of whatever the ant farm is well, for. Well, you know, look at um, okay, say look at a farmer who raises cattle. Mm. Okay, the, the, the farmer takes very good care uh, of his cows. I mean, you know. And, and, oh, we're back you know, to and, the prison and, planet. And, oh well, yeah, God. but, but you know, he loves his cows. He milks them, takes care of them, right. makes sure that they're healthy. And then at a certain point, he sends them out to the abattoir. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's the one scenario. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. but there could be different sources too. We have the classical, like black and white. Exactly. That's been a theme that we've looked at uh, in both part one and part two. You have this angels and demons perspective. So there may be good people because the occultists, most of the esoteric orders, uh, I, I don't think I will vanish mysteriously <laughs> by confessing in public that most esoteric orders have among their secret that there's a war in heaven. Quote, Unquote. Exactly. Uh, but uh, you know, this is the old paradigm, and there and and there may be ancestors of us around. Uh, I mean, you could turn around the ancient astronauts theory instead of saying that astronauts came from Sirius or wherever that we are the one who because we have stories going back to ancient times ancient china talked about how they colonized the moon. Mm-hmm. By the way, literature that they published when it was forbidden in periods where they were forbidden to make up stories. They didn't have poetry and novels and stuff because in their culture for a period they had to have only factoid material. So uh, that's one example. And there's a million. We don't have time to cover it all. So, so yeah, yeah, there could be that too, that we have uh, our own people out there. And that's even earlier than the breakaway civilization you pointed out right, in right. 19th century. The name so. And I and and I love that scenario, by the way. I mean, I have I have looked into that one myself. Oh my God, that then it ties into the whole of Earth. <laughs> right, right. But that that we should have a separate orgy for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need you back for that. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, uh, the books uh, that you have so many books, but let's mention the books that ties into what we've talked about today. Let's talk about Tesla. You have one book on Tesla, right? Or two? Well, I probably my best seller. Uh, Tesla book is called The Lost Journals of Nikola Tesla. And And, the subtitle? uh, It's had a couple of subtitles with different printings. Its original subtitle was, let's see, The Lost Journals of Nikola Tesla. Let's see, um, Harp, uh, Chemtrails, Chemtrails, and The Secret of Alternative Four. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but then see we we did a reprinting of it where I I added new information and then it was like a uh, uh, harp time travel and you know. But alternative four, I thought it was called alternative three. It is alternative three, but there there was a fourth alternative. Is it possible to very quickly hint at what that was? Yeah. <laughs> well, the whole part of alternative four was the idea that okay well you know alternative yeah we know we know about one two three people have talked okay, about okay the it. alternative yeah. four would be to rather than leaving the planet that we would try to use weather modification ah, to stop global warming right. and that was what the whole harp and chemtrail yeah. situation was 
says that this was an attempt to uh, halt global warming, you know, using these you know, basically primitive means. I'm an agnostic to the chemtrail question, but there is, uh, I think it was the movies, What in the Earth Are the Spying or Why in the Earth Are the Spying, that uh, it is out there now, it is mainstream verifiable information that there are plans to try to cover, uh, to, to try to reflect, because as the globe warms up and the polar caps melts, mm-hmm. uh, less sunlight is reflected, uh, and that accelerates the heat. So it's so logical that, you know, these idiots who think that uh, they are uh, trying to kill people, uh, you know, mass genocide, that's the intention. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's typical disinformation. It now, is. If there was, and if it was deliberate, it would be to reflect sunlight. So as to have an artificial version of the uh, relief of the melting polar caps. And that's how arrogant and stupid we are to interfere with nature. This is Frankenstein all over again. It is. So, yeah. And it is out there. Scientists, I'm not saying it has happened, but the plans, the ideas, the projects are in in, uh, the work, so to speak. So who knows where it goes? So, okay, thank you for telling us about that. Uh, of course, Tesla probably pops up in many of your books, but you have at least one more devoted to him. Oh, <laughs> I have so well. Okay, the uh, the other one that we referred to was the secret space program. Who is responsible? Mm. And uh, this this actually was a, uh, um, a, a an updating of an earlier book that I had written. Oh gosh, a number of years ago called oh. Nikola Tesla Journey to Mars. Ah, okay. Right. And the subtitle here is the... Oh, oh okay. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, yeah, it's the secret space program. Who's responsible? Tesla, the Nazis, NASA, or a breakaway civilization? Yes, that's a good uh, appetizer right there. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, I mean, that that those two are just, just a couple of the, the many, many books that I have. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's turn to the time travel books, because I think they would be relevant to much of what we talked about today. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, uh, the most recent one is called Time Travel Fact, Not Fiction. Mm-hmm. It's time slips, real-time machines, and how-to uh, experiments to move forward or backwards through time. And then right. actual cases of people who have uh, uh, traveled through time and space. And then, and then the original one, the first one that I co-wrote with uh, another author by the name of Commander X is called uh, a Time Travel, a How-To Insider's Guide. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Who's this Commander X uh, chap? Well, Commander X was uh, uh, one of uh, uh, Timothy Green Beckley's uh, earlier writers. And uh, Tim Beckley is the gentleman who has Global Communications Publishing, who uh, who, who publishes all of my books. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Commander X, uh, gosh, I mean, he he wrote for uh, and, and Commander X supposedly is a uh, a retired uh, military intelligence official. You haven't met him. You know, I I I have collaborated with him. I have uh, worked through mail and email. But uh, never face to face. Nope. Interesting. And that's the way he likes it. <laughs> so, so, so he could be seeding information out there then. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, you could be a tool too. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, my wife calls me a tool all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, every every husband is to her. Wife, yeah, so. that's right. <laughs> yeah, okay. But you have a book about teleportation, I see. Yes, uh, it's called Teleportation: How to Guide from Star Trek to Tesla. And this uh, that one that one deals. I mean, it's uh, it goes it goes all over the place from you know like the uh, uh, the, the the current understanding of uh, uh, quantum physics and how teleportation you know could work to uh, things like poltergeist activity, uh, which shows definite teleportation of uh, uh, of physical objects. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah. dimensional phenomena. Right. You have a book called Men of Mystery, subtitled. I can never remember the subtitles of my own books here. Yeah. Men- okay. I, okay. I'll help you out. <laughs> I have it in front of me. It's Nikola Tesla and Otis T. Carr. Weird inventions of the strangest men who ever lived. That's right. And, and and you know that that is a fascinating book, and I wish that more people uh, would read this one mm. because I mean there is there is just so much excellent information, especially when it deals with Otis T. Carr who was a gentleman who in the 1960s started to build his own flying saucer based on Tesla technology and uh, uh, came really close to actually making it happen. And then, you know, like weird, mysterious stuff happened with him Mm. that kind of kind of shot him down. You know, it's just a really interesting uh, kind of like a a look at history and how, you know, like uh, outsiders, when they try to, um, develop like a new ideas uh, with uh, especially uh, uh, teleport not teleportation uh, off the wall uh, propulsion systems and things right. like that how they're treated mm-hmm. and then you have the book Secret Black Projects of the New World Order mm-hmm. uh, that kind of ties in here too doesn't it yeah you know that one was um, actually the first book that I ever ever wrote for uh, uh, Tim Beckley's uh, uh, Global Communications, and, uh, and 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 I will have to admit that now he came up with the title to put in the uh, the, the New World Order because at the time that this book came, ah, uh, he wanted to milk that association. He, did. he yeah. really did because at that time <laughs> that was that was really a hot subject. That was the fact. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But you know the the Secret Black Projects, the New World Order, deals a lot with this whole exotic uh, aircraft technology. Yeah, the subtitles gives more away, and that is anti-gravity UFOs, black helicopters, and mysterious flying triangles. Right, you know, because the whole, you know, the whole Area 51 uh, uh, meme was just coming out at that time. Mm. And uh, and and so, I mean, I, I because I, I seriously doubted that they actually had crashed flying saucers there at Area 51. Mm. Uh, but, okay. uh, you know, and my whole my whole idea was that, yeah, this was the place that they were uh, testing exotic technology aircraft. You know, I mean, mm. you know, anti-gravity and what have you. You know, the black triangles were probably coming out of that area at that time. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, the book... Uh... Pioneers of Space, the long-lost book of George Adamski, A Trip to Moon, Mars, and Venus. We have mentioned Adamski earlier. Now, of course, he was some kind of crook, but it doesn't mean that there are interesting aspects to his stories. Uh, some have also tied it into Nazi. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I was the, the editor of that book, um, 
And uh, Pioneers of Space was a science fiction story that George Adamski wrote in the 1940s before his alleged UFO contacts. And uh, this interesting, had, interesting. This had been a lost manuscript for a number of years. And Timothy Green Beckley happened to uh, find somebody who had uh, who had this, and so he was able to get a hold of it and, and reprint it. But up until, I mean, oh my gosh, like I said, this was written probably 1946, something like that, mm -hmm. even before the whole UFO phenomena, you know, mm -hmm. started. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of the stuff that Adamski wrote in Pioneers of Space, yeah. um, uh, it's, it's the, the very same kind of scenarios that he came up with when he claimed to have had contact with the uh, space. You know, you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Ron Hubbard and also uh, what's the founder of Mormonism called? Jo Joseph. Oh, Joseph Smith. Yeah, he reminds me of, he seems to be some kind of weird mix between Joseph Smith and Herbert, because he pulls a Joseph Smith all the time. Uh, oh, I just experienced this, I just experienced that, but you can't be close to me when it happens, like Moses on the mountain, right? It's in secret all the time. And the Herbert thing is that first we write about it. Oh, shit, I can't earn any money as a decent writer. Let's turn it into reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wow. tell you something. I think George Adamski would have loved to have had the money that uh, L. Ron Hubbard ended up getting from his whole, yeah. you know, yeah, 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 <laughs> his, yeah. his religious take on the science fiction. Mm. You know, but, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's very, uh, um, it, it, it is, it's very similar. And I think Adamski was smart enough to, uh, uh, to try to take these, you know, these earlier works that he did and then mm. attach them to the growing flying saucer movement that just, that occurred just a few years later. Right. Mm. Okay, um, I don't think we'll touch on other of your books because we'll get back to them when we discuss the topics related to them. But you have a good few books out there. For long, how long time have you actually been producing these things? Hmm, let's see. I have been writing books since probably 19, I think 1996-97 is when I first started. But, you know, I had been writing um, uh, articles for, like, UFO magazines and, you know, things mm. like that before then. I mean, I helped, I helped put myself through college, you know, in the late 1970s by writing articles for, you know, Saga's UFO magazine. Oh, so when you worked in mainstream television, you were, that was parallel with your... your... You know, once once dabbling in this. Once I got well, see, I mean, I could, I always had done research and stuff like that when I was working in mainstream television. I just wasn't doing any writing because I just never had time for it. And it was, it wasn't until I kind of, uh, you know, retired from uh, uh, television, except on a freelance basis, that mm. I started actually putting out the books because I had, the, I had the time for it. I mean, you know, when you work in television, and you know, I mean, I traveled all over the world, so I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of mm. difficult to. Uh, sit down in front of a then typewriter to, to write about this stuff when you're on a jet plane all the time. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> well, this has been so interesting, Tim. I really look forward to our next seance. So uh, thanks a lot for, for coming on. Well, thank you very much, Al. I had a great time tonight. And, uh, you know, I hope your audience uh, learned something and uh, enjoyed it as well. Mm. Yeah, me too, for sure. 
And that concludes our conversation with Tim Schwartz. Before closing up, I'd like to express a few sentiments about the status of the forum. First off, we have to express our heartfelt appreciation of the overwhelming feedback we've received so far. We're really quite surprised about how well these uh, programs are perceived. We seriously had no idea before we started that it would resonate with so many of you. And not just that, but you, our listeners, also seem to be above average in, how should I put this, uh, brightness. Because we got so much thoughtful feedback and moreover, so many people willing to help out. So let me take the opportunity to give a shout out to our two new team members. Blue Green, who is now pumping up the YouTube clips. If you think they become more classy lately, that's due to him as a professional videographer, spending his free time, like the rest of us, devoting it to improve the experience for the audience. And our latest addition to the team is H.G., who's quite the detective and tracks down the most obscure email addresses and gets through to the highest ivory tower guests in order for us to reach those we seek to book. Remember, getting hold of them isn't always enough. They also need to see that you, the listeners wants them to get the forum treatment that coming on this program for a calm, in-depth conversation is something to be desired. And of course, the rest of the team also contribute with their efforts. And even if many of you seem to enjoy my interview style, despite the fact that I'm a naive amateur, I alone do not manifest these programs. The most important factor, of course, apart from the generous guests who donate their time to speak with us, is you folks. By contributing in whatever way you can, including just listening and sharing the programs and spreading the word. Those of you who can afford to spend a few cents through donations have really eased our costs. And we're now starting to think that this fresh breeze from north, that this Borealis approach may just be something that will stick around for a while. One third of our production costs are now reduced, so it's going the right way. So thanks a lot for for chipping in. Let's hope we manage to keep this interesting and worthwhile for everyone. Check in next time to see for yourself when we're following this track of Breakaway Bandits further. Until then, together with the full Borealis team, I sincerely remain your host, Al. Be seeing you. Who is number one?